0: Let's go once again to, to our Father in prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, um, we lift up to you this morning the, uh, the people of Paraguay, and, and, and we thank you, uh, Father, uh, for your churches there, that you have raised up a people for yourself in that nation, among many different ethnic groups and tribes and tongues and languages. But Father, we, uh, we pray. Uh, that the gospel would flourish and grow. We pray for good theology, good teaching, solid training for pastors and Bible teachers that the truth about you and Jesus Christ would uh, would be deep and rich in the churches there. We pray for those who are trapped by a, a syncretism, uh, between the Roman church and the uh, and animism and superstitions of the region, um, that you would free them from the bondage of that idolatry and give them the hope and the joy that comes only from knowing that we are saved entirely by grace through faith on the merits of Jesus Christ alone. Father, we, uh, we pray even that that same type of syncretism would come to an end in America, would come to an end here in Cleveland, that we would root it out even in our own hearts, where we have seek to marry the good things of the gospel and Christ, with the false hopes of this world and told our hearts that they are compatible when they are not. And may we, uh, like the Apostle Paul and his compatriots, be faithful to demolish every argument and stronghold that holds itself up against the knowledge of God that Christ might be made much of and that all glory would be given to him and him alone. Father, our world is fallen and wicked, and yet you've not abandoned us but given us hope. As we ask why those things are this morning, we pray that you give us insight and understanding from your Bible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in a a series through the first roughly 11 chapters of Genesis. That'll be our primary series this fall. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning, so uh, you can turn, click, swipe, tap, or do what you do to get to Genesis 3. There are Bibles in the seats in front of you. Uh, Unless you're in the Front row, in which case, pull out a phone. Um, Let me read, and then we'll dig in. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now Well, furious news stories alert us to soldiers, federal workers who might struggle to put food on the table if that spending bill doesn't get passed last night in Congress. Paris is awash in bedbugs. Serbian troops line up along the border of Kosovo. Russian troops bomb a civilian Shelter filled with 600 Ukrainians, including children, marked. Venezuelan refugees cross the treacherous roadless jungles of the Darien Gap with ever-present threats of sexual abuse, drug cartels, and other paramilitary groups, hunger, disease, theft, abandonment. A mother struggles to nurse her child in South Sudan as civil war and famine have conspired to leave her malnourished and starving. In Afghanistan, families are pushed away from the cities to escape the despotic and cruel policies of the Taliban. We heard last week a young girl from northeast Ohio was abducted and raped across state lines by a man from New Mexico who contacted her online. Thousands are dead from flooding in Libya. Thousands are dead from an earthquake in Morocco. Canadian wildfire fires nearly the size of Minnesota pushed hazardous air across northern U.S. cities. This is our planet. Philosophers discuss something called the problem of evil. It's argued that an all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God would stop evil in its tracks. And so the reasoning goes, the, the fact that we have evil at all, let alone so much of it, is proof that God does not exist. But many other philosophers are unconvinced by that argument. I am unconvinced by that argument. But that's a little much for today. I, and I think, though, that there is another problem of evil. A different problem of evil that's more fundamental than the one the philosophers talk about, uh, the one that predated the philosopher's dilemma. Because without any question, there is evil. So the more fundamental question is why is there evil? And relatedly, does it have any meaning? Those are sort of the whys of evil. And and assuming there is evil, and I trust that most of you will not argue with that fact, these questions are fundamental. Because only if we know the whys of evil can we have any hope to combat it. In the same way that we can't cure any disease until we've first learned to understand how that disease comes to be in the body and, and what it's trying to do. Without that, it's nearly hopeless to invent a cure. Well, Genesis 3 takes us to the whys of evil and suggests a possible solution. The first thing that might catch your attention is, is the story. It's one you've likely heard, at least in passing, and you might have noticed some things missing when you heard me read it. Uh, you might have noticed it's, it's not called a snake. It's a serpent. There's no mention of an apple. There's no mention of Satan. So maybe that piques your curiosity a bit. And on the other hand, though, it, it hardly sounds like history, does it? The, the Bible is full of stories that are written more or less like history. They aren't histories in the modern sense, but the Bible tells us about this or that person living in this or that place, doing these or those things, and it generally seems quite grounded, true to this life. But some of the stories in the early chapters of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, seem a little bit more distant from the world that we know, don't they? And and depending on your proclivities, that might cause you to disregard these stories as a myth. But like we talked about last week, the category of myth isn't isn't the right category. Uh, Despite the elements that might seem fanciful to us, that might even seem strange to us, even strange in the context of Genesis itself, There are parts of this story that are very intentionally grounded in the real world and follow the same pattern as those parts that seem otherwise historical. So without rehashing all of that, the story in Genesis 3 is presented as accurate, faithful, a true account of certain events that took place in the real world. It's maybe not history in the sense of Edward Gibbons, the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, but it's not false. And we have to approach it on its own terms and ask what we're supposed to see and what we're supposed to know. And to do that, we have to allow ourselves to enter the story that's written, not the story that we want to be written. And so rather than look for the details that aren't given, we should focus on the details that are given and lean into them. And we might find the story to be surprising. Starting in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, through the end of chapter 3, is really one story, one literary unit. And I've broken it into two sermons, two messages, but it's one story. You can't really separate chapter 3 from the events that happen in chapter 2. And those in turn rely on chapter one. So there's a building up of context. And so quick recap, chapter one through the fourth verse of chapter two describe God's creation of the universe in a systematic and carefully planned way that he can describe to himself as very good. And the details of the passage uh, at points are like an attack on the religious myths of the ancient world. There is one God who created everything. He has no rivals. He has no threats. And at the culmination of his creation, he makes mankind, male and female, in a way that reflects him so that human beings were to show off God's glory and rule with God under God. And as our present story began, there's this zeroing in on God's dealing with humanity. In God's very good world, there was this rich tract of land called Eden, and in that land, God cultivated an orchard or a garden in the traditional language, and He cultivates that garden in the good soil of the land. He makes a man and He places him there in that orchard with a mandate to maintain that location and, I think, a mandate to transform the rest of earth into Eden. He needed a companion for that work, someone who was like him but not him, a complement and not a clone. And God gives him a woman, which not only brings about the first marriage, but also defines the meaning and purpose and boundaries of marriage. Human beings were made for God and human beings were made for each other. And Something else we noted, the description of the orchard in Eden and the first humans' roles there were very suggestive of something in Israel's history, the tabernacle, and later the temple. It's as if the orchard itself is a temple, the place where God would meet with his special creations where they would worship him and enjoy him forever. So let's re-enter that ancient temple and see what we can see there. And capturing our attention is that that very first sentence. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You've got Questions. I think the first readers had questions too. It is, I think, an intentionally shocking and surprising sentence. Nothing before this prepares us for this statement about a crafty serpent. And it only gets more perplexing when we read, he said. So we have a talking. Crafty serpent. And that is weird and it is intentionally shocking. I think it is there to wake us up and realize something is going on that is out of the ordinary. So, what is going on? Who or what is this serpent? Where does he come from? How does he talk? What does it mean that he's more crafty than the other animals? I mean, on a most basic level, the text tells us what we need to know. He was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. This serpent... Was one of the beasts of the field, one of the wild animals, we might say. Perhaps the particular one is the one God made in chapter 2 to bring it in front of Adam for Adam to name it. But it's a created being, it's a created being. And not just a created being, but it's a created being of the animal kind, which means what? It's under the dominion of the man and the woman. They were created in God's image. They were told to be fruitful and multiply, and they were told to have dominion over the beasts of the earth. Here's a beast of the earth. It is under their dominion. Now, the reason why we might think of it as a snake is because this term serpent could refer to a a snake. It could refer to some other type of reptilian type thing, Um, and it's just not very specific in the text. We have to just deal with the fact that it's not specific. It's possible that the serpent is either intended to be understood or symbolic of a spiritual creature. Um, Some Spiritual creatures were described as fiery serpents. But there are places in the Bible where the fiery serpents seem to just be snakes. So there is a possible suggestion here. That there could be more than meets the eye with this creature. We tend to think of the serpent as being Satan. But you go. Wait, wait a second. It doesn't say Satan here in the text anywhere. By the New Testament, certainly by the Book of Revelation, uh, this serpent seems to be associated with Satan. Maybe that's because the devil took the form of the snake. Maybe the uh, the devil used the snake that was in the garden. But we're not told. What we do know is the snake is just about the most unclean of unclean animals. The Israelites were given laws about clean animals and unclean animals. Clean animals were ones they could eat, animals that they could sacrifice. Uh, unclean animals were animals that they shouldn't eat, they shouldn't touch. They were considered filthy, in a way. And as a, a creature of that slithers or squiggles or wiggles around on its belly in the dirt. It's sort of like the most unclean of unclean animals, if there were hierarchies of unclean animals. And in that sense, it serves as sort of a perfect foil for God's goodness and his provision. It's created rather than the creator. It's unclean rather than clean or holy. We don't know how the serpent talks. We only know that the serpent was more crafty than any other animal that God had created. That's a, a term that would have caught the first reader's attention as well because this term crafty, it's one of those words that depending on the context, can be a really good thing in Hebrew, and it can be a really bad thing in Hebrew. It's the, the sort of like the quality that allows a person to skillfully navigate a treacherous situation. And that might be for bad, in which case it's cunningness or craftiness, or, or, or it could be for good, in which case you might translate it prudence or wisdom. And so it's this neat little linguistic trick where you just, you you read, your your mind is kind of blown by a a crafty serpent, and then also, but what are we saying about this serpent? That it's really prudent and wise, or that it's really cunning? And it kind of just draws us into the, the story a little bit. The Bible, like I said, does not tell us how it talks. It's one of two talking animals in the Bible. And that one is designed to shock us. That other one, the story of Balaam. I think so. This one probably is designed to shock us too. Some people have suggested, well, it didn't seem strange to Eve, so maybe she was used to talking to the animals in that day before things went wrong. I don't think so. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. I think that this is supposed to be out of the ordinary. It's supposed to be shocking. It's supposed to be surprising. And maybe it's even more shocking that the woman does not appear to be shocked. I think perhaps that her lack of shock is a combination of the serpent's craftiness and the woman's innocence. She should be as shocked as we are. She's not. And it's the first sign of trouble. Of course, you know that the serpent is going to deceive the woman. That part of the story is really well known. But it's worth paying attention to how he does it. Because very often, you're going to find that when you are deceived, it progresses along very similar lines. So what's the serpent's initial ruse? Well, the serpent approaches the woman. Did God actually say, you shall not eat any tree of the garden? And what does that suggest? Just the phrasing of it. He doesn't say it. He doesn't come out and say it. It's interesting that the, the serpent speaks in implication and questions. Because if the serpent speaks in declarative statements, this or that is the case, well, you could put that statement on trial and investigate it. How often is it, though, that deceivers, they want to deceive us by putting things in the interrogative to give us questions, to implicate things, to implicitly suggest things, but not come out and say them? And what's he implying? That God's rules were strict? God's rules weren't generous. But remember God's command back in, ch- in chapter 2. He begins it this way. He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. That's how God prefaces his command. Before adding one small exception. Just not this one tree. So it's like God is saying, I put this, I, I, I took you out of this land and, and, I, and in this great world, in this great land, on great soil. I produced this perfect orchard with all the provisions you could possibly need. I'm putting you there. I've given you all of it. Just avoid this one thing. But the serpent's language is a little bit suggestive that maybe God isn't as gracious or as good as he actually is. And he's suggesting that God's generosity is actually stinginess. Instead of focusing the woman's attention on everything God has given her, he focuses her attention on the one thing God hasn't. Now the woman, for her part, corrects the serpent in part. But her words, they, they don't really capture God's generosity, uh, do they? She said, um, no, that's not true. She said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And, and so it doesn't have that same oomph as, oh, you can certainly eat of everything here. Just, just one thing. You know, it, it doesn't have that, that, that same oomph. And then... It's, it's interesting that she adds this little tidbit that she's not even supposed to touch the tree. Where did that come from? That wasn't in God's command. I can think of four reasons Eve made this statement. It's hard to know which is accurate. I think maybe a combination of these is going on. Remember, uh, where and when was this command given? Well, this command was given after God put Adam in the garden, but before Adam named the animals, before God gave Adam a helper meat for him, before the creation of the woman. Is the command repeated? Not in Scripture. So we're left with the assumption that Eve learned God's command from her husband, from Adam. So one possibility is Eve just didn't pay very close attention. In that case, we might say she's either intellectually lazy or morally lazy. It's a possibility. Another possibility, in being tempted, Eve exaggerates the command even to her own soul. So in other words, we might say she just lied to herself. A third possibility is that Adam was ineffective in communicating the command. In other words, he was just a bad teacher. Another possibility is that sort of like a strict parent, Adam did not treat Eve like an equal. And so he strengthened the command in likely a wrong-headed attempt to protect her. Same way that we might tell a young child, never go near the stove. What's wrong with the stove? He makes food. So in that case, we might say, Adam was a Pharisee. We're not told where Eve gathered the idea to add this provision. But I think somewhere in that mix is where it came from. So how does the serpent respond? He says, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. What's his ruse? He's undermining the truthfulness of God, so now he's finally come out and said, he's not going to say God's a liar, not directly, but he is going to say that what you just said that God said is false. So he's questioning God's truthfulness regarding death, And he's questioning God's motivations regarding whether it's good for Adam and Eve to have this knowledge. And that makes God seem like a power-hungry tyrant instead of the loving provider of all good things. Was the serpent being honest? Some people have have debated that, And, and the truth is yes and no. He's known in this, this passage uh, uh, more as a deceiver than a liar because he manipulates the truth to say something that was on one level objectively true but led the couple into falsehood. They didn't die that moment, did they? But they did die. In Genesis 4, we see death enter the world. In Genesis 5, we see a litany of death after death after death after death. And if we understand God's words to mean something more like you will become mortal or that they will be cut off from spiritual vitality, then there's not even a problem with any sort of delay when they eat to the death itself. Not that I think there was in the first place, but the serpent is, again, manipulating the truth to say something that might be on one level objectively true and yet in a way that leads them to falsehood. Was the serpent honest when he said they would be like God? Again, yes and no. This idea of the knowledge of good and evil um, is debated what it, what it meant, what it, what it indicated, what it suggested. What did it, it mean uh, for human beings to have the knowledge of good and evil? And I think that the most popular interpretation has to be wrong. The most popular interpretation is that Adam and Eve could not know morality from immorality before eating from that tree, They didn't know what sin was. That has to be wrong because God gave them a command and expected them to follow it. They had an idea of what was right and what was wrong. I think the the idea of the knowledge of, of good and evil here is to save a longer, more complicated discussion, it is sort of this uh, uh, divine quality. It is that wisdom that maybe is only suitable for God about knowing how to conduct the affairs of the world, the universe, in all of his providence and goodness, and all that is right and appropriate within that. I think we also get the idea that there's this great tragedy that if Adam and Eve had just reached out their hand and licked the skin of the fruit of the tree of life, we'd all be here uh, happy and healthy without any loss. And and that if they eat that, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they're they're somehow just like God. And I I don't think that's the implication of the text. I, I think the implication is that one is a source of ongoing life and one is a source of ongoing knowledge. In other words, by enjoying God's presence in the garden, and dwelling with God in his provision and join him forever, they would never cease to be able to take from the fruit that welled up to life in their soul. And in the same way, I don't think that by eating from the other tree, they suddenly had all the knowledge of good and evil that God possesses but they got a taste. If they were to keep eating from it and keep eating it, they would grow more and more like God in this quality. So there is a sense in which they'll be more like God. But the reality is what? They are already like God. He made them in his image in chapter 1. And so the implication of the serpent is that God is keeping something from them when they actually already have the better part. And you see how this manipulation works. It might also be worth noting the serpent does not tell her to eat the fruit. He doesn't offer the fruit. There's something all the more tempting, isn't there, about something that is still technically forbidden and yet so obviously there for the taking. Many years later, Satan would attempt to tempt another man, Jesus of Nazareth, as Erica read for us this morning. And there, too, Satan also tries to twist God's word. He actually quotes the Bible, taking it out of context. There, too, he appeals to what seems desirable to Jesus. Food, bread after fasting for 40 days. There too, he tries to get Jesus to question God's protection and God's provision. And there too, Jesus is made an offer to have the treasures of God apart from the relationship with his heavenly Father. It is an old ruse. Well, what is the woman's response? Let's, let's zero in there. Because it begins to unpack this question of what's gone wrong. She sees that the tree is good for food, and it's a delight to the eyes, and it's desired to be, make one wise. And she took of the fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Eve craves the fruit with lustful covetousness. Why do I say that? These verbs, these adjectives, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was desired to make one wise, they appear one other place in the Old Testament. When Moses gives the Ten Commandments a second time to the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy and warns them God's law that they should not covet. And we get these same two words. That there is this illicit, lustful desire to have what doesn't belong to her. And that desire to have what's not ours is a powerful temptation. And so she takes it, and she eats it, and she gives some to her husband. Now, the fact that Adam was with Eve is interesting because it suggests that he is complicit in this crime. He had at least three opportunities to avoid this sin. If he's with her, as he hears this conversation going on, He has the ability to correct the record. No, that's not what God said. Let me tell you what God said. But Adam does not speak. He could have protected his wife from a deceiver, he could have protected his wife from a wild animal over which he had been given dominion. But Adam does not grab a stick or a stone or the heel of his foot to do anything about this serpent. And third, he could have at least, at least chosen to not act on this illicit Desire. But he didn't take any one of these three options. So, who's at fault here? That's been debated for generations. Paul tells us that Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. Her deception is what allowed her to transgress the command. Why does Paul say that Adam wasn't deceived? Well, God gave the command directly to Adam. Adam knew good and well what the command was. And he didn't directly interact with the serpent either. So Eve was deceived, tricked, misled by the certain serpent. But Adam, knowing full well what God had commanded, simply rebelled. Adam also was a transgressor, so what Romans 5.14 says, but his transgression was definitely a sin also, Romans 5.12. And so there might be a sense that Adam's transgression was in some way more morally significant than Eve's, but I think... Rather than trying to piece this apart as sort of discrete events, I think we are called to take this as a single event. All of humanity is represented in this couple. Sin was initiated in the action of the woman, and it was consummated in the action of the man. It happened in cooperation. God gave the man a helper, and they helped each other to reject God. And suddenly the words of the serpent come true. Their eyes were open to see what? That they were naked. And they were ashamed. Was it so bad that they were naked? Is, na- is nakedness the problem? And It's not so much that nakedness was good or bad so much as they were exposed. And, and there's a great symbolism here. It was uh, later in, in the Old Testament, it was proper, only proper to worship God covered as a symbol of our uncleanness and, and perhaps a respect for God's holiness. Now, the the first of those things is irrelevant before the fall because they weren't unclean in the least. The second went over their heads. But now their eyes are open, like the serpent said, but they're open to what? Their own inadequacies. And the exposure of their bodies was a fitting symbol for their moral exposure before the eyes of God who sees everything and they felt it and quickly they try to cover themselves but they are unable to hide their shame from God and so we come to their hiding they hear God walking in the cool of the day, and they hide. Do they? What does it mean, to hear God walking? Probably not literally walking, right? God does not have a body. He is not a man. Uh, some translations prefer moving about. In what way was God moving? Well, this phrase, the cool of the day, might be more literally translated, the wind of the day. And perhaps like God's spirit was the wind uh, over the surface of the deep in Genesis 1, it's in the garden in Genesis 3. Some have also suggested that this word day might, might actually have connotations of a, a storm. And we have God approaching in the wind of a storm, which is a figure that we see throughout the rest of of the Bible, as a symbol of his power and his majesty when he comes in judgment. We see that in the book of Job, which, interestingly enough, is one of the other places where an accuser shows up. But they hide from God. And that's the fate of all of us ever since, isn't it? When we feel guilty, we want to Hide. When we're little, that, that we, we hide first from our parents or we hide from a brother or a sister or we try to hide from a teacher. We try to make ourselves small. We don't want to be seen. And when we struggle with uh, uh, anxieties and, and mental health, Challenges, even as adults, we sometimes uh, revert to these same patterns of trying to physically make ourselves feel smaller or covered or hidden to avoid those feelings of inadequacy. But the truth of the matter is that all of our hiding is ultimately, whether we know it or not, hiding from God who already sees exactly how inadequate we are. God asks, where are you? Does God not know where he is? Of course he knows where he is, because he says it to the man. And there's this gentleness, and there's this graciousness in God's ferreting out of his wayward creation like a father finding his scared Guilty child. What's the response? Adam blames his wife. And so God turns to his wife and she blames the serpent. God doesn't ask any questions of the serpent. But notice the pattern that's been set up in Genesis 1 and 2. God is over all. He makes mankind in his image. And he gives them dominion over the creatures of the earth. In Genesis 2, we see a little bit more detail that within humanity... Adam is made first and Eve is made as his helper, his companion, his complement. Fundamentally equal, as made an image of God, but having complementary roles. And there is a pattern set up that is flipped on its head by chapter 3. Adam listens to his Wife instead of to his God. His wife listens to the serpent instead of to the husband, and the serpent rejects God's authority entirely. The serpent usurped the woman's authority, the woman usurped the man's authority, the man usurped God's authority. Or put another way, the entire created order was flipped on its head. And when God responds to them, he responds to them in that reverse order. The serpent, and then the woman, and then the man. The world has gone entirely sideways. What are the significance of these these curses? The serpent and its, its progeny are cursed to continue in this state of uncleanness as one of the swarming things. And its lot is to eat dust. In other words, its lot is to crawl about on the ground, inevitably eating the dust of the earth, the stuff the man was made of, and the stuff the man would become again in death. And there's this continual enmity between the two species. And this multi-generational struggle suggests that these actions are about more than just two people, Adam and Eve, but they are about the whole of the human race. Scholars debate these attacks, he he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. On one hand, that's those locations of those injuries are exactly what you would expect in real life, right? What how does a how do you kill a snake? Smash its head. And how does a snake kill a man? If it's venomous, it strikes low. But, on the other hand, a blow to the head on a snake is almost always deadly. But the bite on an ankle often is. The deception of sin will likely cause much pain. And it will take many lives, but there is a hint, ultimately, that somehow mankind may prevail. God turns to the woman and, and what do we make of this curse on on, on childbearing? And then what do we make of this curse on the ground? And a couple of things, he curses the serpent, but he does not curse the man and he does not curse the woman. They're not directly cursed but their creation mandate to multiply and have dominion over the earth is cursed. When we, when we think about that command, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all the earth, I think we would say without much controversy that in the being fruitful and multiplying part, the women have the larger burden. 99 times out of 100, maybe more. And historically, when it, when it, when it comes to the, the field work and the farming and the plowing and, and, and those sorts of things, historically, the man tends to have the heavier burden. Not 100% of the time, but, but most of the time. And, and so this, this activity of uh, the woman had that, that should have been the, the source of joy has become a source of pain and the, and the work in the, in the land that should have brought about delicious plenty will now often bring about mediocre lack. Life always involved work. But now the work has become unfruitful at times and hard. But we have in these closing lines some points of discouragement and points of hope. Adam names Eve. The significance of that, that she's the the source of life. But in some of the pagan mythologies, it was the serpent who was a source of life. Not so... Not so. Second, it suggests that hope is not lost. She will be a mother. Life will go on, even if death must come. It's the first hint that this is not over. And third, I think there's something to say that she's the mother of all the living, not just, it doesn't say just the living human beings. And I think that that suggests that maybe, maybe the creation mandate to have dominion has not entirely been lost. And God covers them. And some have suggested that this covering is is maybe it's the first animal sacrifice. I mean, where did God get animal skins from if he didn't kill the animal? And there might be a hint to that there, but it's just, it's not but it might just be sufficient to say that God has graciously provided for them in their inadequacy and that alone suggests that God is not done with them God told them that if they ate from that tree, they would die. They're going to die. But the fact that they're not dead yet, and God is providing for them still, is hope that things aren't over. And although we, like they, are separated from God, if we are living and breathing and God is providing anything for us, there's hope that it's not over. But there is a pain point. They have something of this divine knowledge that they weren't ready for or wasn't appropriate for them. They've become sinners, and they cannot be allowed to live forever as sinners, which might be the the clearest indication that life and death were tied to God's provision and presence in the garden. They would need to regularly feast from God's provision to live. And apart from God's presence, death must inevitably come. And so... He expels them from the garden. He casts them out. It's like the language that God uses, if you're familiar with the later story, of casting the Canaanites out of the land in order to bring the Israelites in. This is judgment. And he places the, the cherubim to guard the entrance on the, the east side, which is Again, reminiscent of this tabernacle, of the temple. Where was the entrance to the tabernacle on the temple? It was on the east side. And, and what are cherubim? Well, they're, they're divine throne guardian angels. They are not cute little things at Valentine's Day. They are deadly, dangerous, scary, fearsome things. Later, the tabernacle and the temple would be decorated with images of these creatures. They signify that access to God is being cut off. And also maybe that more than meets the eye is happening in this garden as heaven meets earth in this place. So evil, why is it, what's its purpose? We know it didn't start with this world. There was something there before we got here. And the Bible doesn't give us much detail on that. It's not for us. But the evil that is in this world started with us. Our rebellion, our rejection of God's good provision, and our dissatisfaction with what he has given us, have brought a separation from our creator, from our provider, from our protector, and from our Lord. The problem is and always has been us. But that leads to a potential solution. What if... If God wasn't done with them and God isn't done with us, what if there was a better man? What if there was a man who could defeat the wiles of temptation? What if there was a man who just just one time there was someone who didn't follow that same course that Adam did? What if there could be a new family head? What if there could be a new family rooted not in the rebellion of Adam, but in the faithful rightness of this other man? In time, God sent that man, the descendant of the woman whose name was life, who was the mother of life. This man was life. As John wrote, the life was in him, and the life was the light of man. That man, Jesus of Nazareth, rejected the temptations of Satan in the wilderness, in the field. And he lived in obedience to the holy commands. And in time, he would lay down his life. The bad. Father took what he wanted and lived for himself. The good father laid down his life and took the pain for his children. And so there's hope. Let's pray. Father, give us who are called by your name the wisdom and the insight by your Spirit to not fall to the deceptions and temptations of evil, but let us renew our commitment to the new man, Jesus Christ, and be transformed in him, to be holy and blameless before him, on the day of his appearance. And may those who find themselves inadequate, guilty, small, hiding, come home to know that they are seen. And God is calling them, you are calling them out of their hiding and into the light of the life of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.